Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Sheila Hollis, Acting Executive Director of the U.S. Energy Association. USEA is an industry association that represents 150 members across the U.S. energy sector, from the largest Fortune 500 companies to small energy consulting firms. The organization supports policy and technical discussions with the U.S. Department of Energy to expand the use of clean energy technology globally and works to expand energy access in developing countries with the U.S. Agency for International Development. Sheila and I will be talking today about changes facing the energy industry in both mature and in developing markets. It's a big topic, but given USEA's breadth of coverage, one that Sheila is well positioned to discuss. Stay with us. Sheila, it's a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Kristen. It's, uh, I'm very appreciative of being invited to speak on your podcast. Of course. So, Sheila, you stepped into your role at USEA at, I think it's fair to call it a challenging time, when the organization's longtime head suddenly passed away and you took over the mantle from him. So... Can you just tell us a little bit more about how you got into the energy field, how your role with USEA has evolved over the years, and kind of bring us up to where you are today? Certainly. Uh, Well, Kristen, I've been in uh, the energy business uh, for over four decades now, uh, beginning as a a lawyer. Uh, Actually, coming to Washington, uh, just had taken the bar exam out in Colorado, New Mexico, and Wyoming, uh, and uh, ended up in, in D.C. at the old Federal Power Commission. And uh, wonderful experience. Uh, I immediately jumped into a major case uh, and never looked back and realized that this this is where I was going to um, put up stakes uh, and pursue a career in something that uh, really, really was a wonderfully exciting uh, and rewarding career. I really uh, began at the old Federal Power Commission and uh, subsequently, after representation of the state of New York for about three years in the energy shortage period, went back in to establish the director as the first office of enforcement of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which was itself brand new and a successor agency to the Federal Power Commission. Uh, This is in uh, the late 70s. Uh, and then uh, we accomplished, uh, we built an office from zero to 65 employees and uh, got the regulations in place. And uh, after several years in that uh, role, I w- went back into private practice. And uh, since that time, I've worked very uh, expansively in the energy field, both domestically and internationally. And I've represented clients all over the world in uh, infrastructure development, hydro, nuclear transportation, oil, gas, uh, reliability, enforcement, uh, all over the world uh, with a special emphasis in Africa, um, Europe, uh, the UK, uh, and South America and Mexico. So uh, I've had, uh, I always uh, loved energy and uh, uh, it has been all of my professional career has been in energy. And uh, I got into USEA uh, because of that. I I had heard about it. I'd seen a couple little uh, advertisements or blurbs about it. Uh, and someone finally invited me to one of the 
meetings at which I just couldn't believe the amount of information in one place at one time. This is before the magic world of of, uh, of podcasts and uh, and other uh, uh, Zoom meetings and all alike. Uh, and it was a tremendous uh, opportunity for camaraderie, but it also was a tremendous opportunity for learning uh, and uh, being with uh, like-minded people, those who loved energy in its various forms and who spent their lives devoted to it. So that's how I got into it, and Barry and his team were warm, welcoming, great people. Got to know Barry and the team that made up USEA, and uh, as, as a result, I became more active in it, went on the board, and was chair of the board until uh, Barry's untimely demise, and that's um, I was uh, honored to be asked by the board to step in uh, in the acting executive director role, although they were incredibly large shoes to fill. Uh, we had to continue to fulfill the mission of, of USEA, which was, uh, as you know, uh, a dual mission. First, to uh, convene, educate, bring people, like-minded people together, but also to work in 104 countries around the world over the years uh, with U.S. Agency for International Development, Department of State, and the Department of Energy uh, to aid those parts of the world and those peoples of the world that had either no energy or uh, inadequate or unsafe energy, and to uh, basically uh, work with the, the U.S. government to improve uh, the, the life uh, and, uh, and experience of uh, people throughout the world who needed it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm definitely looking forward to, I know that's sort of the focus of our conversation today, and I, I definitely want to talk to you more about that international experience. But I do have one more opening question first, and it's sort of based on um, something that you noted in our recent correspondence that's sort of one of your signature lines. And, you know, the reference is that energy never sleeps. And um, that that stuck in my head, and I wanted to ask you about it. And so I guess if you could just kind of using that as a frame, maybe tell us how you think that reflects the expectations that are facing the energy industry right now. And I guess I wanted to ask, does the energy industry sleep even less now than it did in times past? Is it really, is sort of our dependence on energy and the pace of energy, what's required of the energy uh, industry in general? Just how, how do you see that playing out today? Well, it, I think we can see it playing out just with recent events, uh, uh, blackouts, uh, freezeouts, uh, confusion and chaos on, on uh, grids uh, in a number of settings, particularly hard hit recently is Texas, but also surrounding states. We've seen it in California, uh, the impact that energy has and the dramatic impact that events uh, going on uh, in the um, in the environment have an impact on the energy business. So it, 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 you can go to sleep tonight and wake up and the world can be changed, whether it is Fukushima, whether it is the Suez Canal blocked, which is uh, inhibiting uh, oil and, and LNG and, and all kinds of things from being um, shipped around the world, uh, whether it's an invasion or a war or uh, a disagreement and uh, the, the energy can't sleep because it is reflective. It's like a, a breathing, living organism. It breathes with the world and the world breathes with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I certainly think that all of us have experienced the, and seen made more visible the ways in which that's true. So thank you for, um, thank you for reflecting a little bit on that with me. So, yeah. So um, I'm very grateful 
today that you sort of suggested that we might focus in on the international efforts that USEA undertakes. And of course, we could cover a tremendous amount of territory related to the energy industry. But let's talk in some depth about expanding energy access in developing countries. It's a major component of USEA's portfolio. And so let me start by asking, in your view, what are the most important ways that U.S.-based companies can support that expanded energy access abroad? Well, when you realize that there are still at least a billion people on a planet with no energy, there's a lot of places to start. And there's many different technologies. There's many different resources that can be brought to bear. And uh, USEA uh, reflects all those uh, different opportunities and also trying to address existing risks, uh, shortages, problems, need for training and the like. So with our staff, which are really the crown jewels of of USEA and uh, our board's continuing uh, support, what we try to do is to take um, the staff and uh, those that we work with to bring their intellect and uh, impact and dedication to the world uh, with the U.S. government and uh, to build and strengthen energy systems globally and to help the people in those countries uh, to manage uh, more efficiently, uh, thoughtfully, and uh, with more um, attention to uh, the cost to the people in those countries uh, and the needs and the dynamic situation in these countries and the changing needs that they may have. So we try to bring wisdom. We try to bring training. Uh, we try to bring technology and to work closely with the people in the country so that we develop long-lasting relationships uh, with them and demonstrate uh, and uh, partner with them uh, to make their life and the life of their people better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Sheila, you've mentioned technology a couple of times, and I clearly that's a huge part of the energy picture is, is how the technology picture is changing behind the scenes. And so I want to ask just a couple of questions about emerging technologies or changing technologies. Um, so first of all, you know, USEA has a wide-ranging membership and really has all sizes of organizations involved in the association. So you've got a great lens on how these emerging technologies are impacting the industry overall. Can you say just a little bit more about that? Sure. We've got uh, a variety of them. We we try to cover all of the various um, sources of energy and uh, how they can be applied uh, given the circumstances in the country uh, and uh, given the uh, technology which may may work for them. Uh, there's many emerging technologies um, in addition to the traditional ones, uh, hydro, nuclear, oil, gas, and the like. Uh, so we are working in, uh, in areas as broad as hydrogen, the utilization of hydrogen, um, carbon capture and storage, uh, and uh, trying to be responsive to the environmental awakening and environmental needs of the world while still providing uh, a support and assistance uh, vis-a-vis the energy supply itself. So we're, we're really um, we're working with a lot of new technologies, uh, cutting-edge developments occurring in labs and uh, companies, universities that will ultimately be adopted by other entities um, and uh, working on the arena of uh, cost-effective and reduction of the carbon uh, footprint as well. There's a lot of challenges, but there's a lot of huge opportunities and a lot of excitement in making this happen. And um, uh, it's a bubbling stew of creativity and experimentation to address the CO2 issues. And also uh, to, in addition to the CO2 issues, just to make things cost-effective, more available, 
uh, and more workable for the long haul with environmental uh, sensitivity built in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what does that what does that parallel picture look like in developing countries? Then, do you see developing economies sort of already embracing some of those newer technologies, maybe like hydrogen or uh, you know even additional uh, kind of renewables technologies, or would you say that they're largely focused on expanding energy access through, I guess, what we would consider the more uh, classic oil, natural gas, uh, coal? What's the what's the balance of emerging versus kind of um, classic technologies there? Well, a classic uh, sometimes it's uh, the the country is driven by the resources they have on hand, and um, understanding that uh, the CO two issues are are built in throughout the world as issues that need to be dealt with. But sometimes they have at hand, for example, natural gas. It's there. Uh, they may have an inadequate uh, pipeline system. They may have there may be uh, training issues and the like. But sometimes they have to play the hand they're dealt, and the hand they're dealt might be the utilization, at least for now, until there's a, a solution which does not uh, rely so heavily on CO2 uh, to to go with that and do the best they can to diminish any waste, excess, uh, or unnecessary exposure. But uh, that's to make the energy that they have available uh, safer, uh, uh, available to people, and to manage it better. Uh, for example, in the in South America and in Eastern Europe, we worked very, very extensively. When the wall fell, we really became extremely active. Uh, uh, once the wall fell in all those countries that were left as a result of um, antiquated technology, extremely ex- some extremely dirty uh, technology, uh, or just a broken system altogether that did not serve serve the people adequately or uh, allow for development at all in any meaningful ways, to go in and really work hand-in-hand hand over the course of the last, well, since uh, the early 90s uh, to, to improve their life, whether it's uh, the training of how to run a grid, training in uh, how to uh, uh, protect your engineers that are out in the field, uh, natural gas safety, uh, electric safety, those types of issues to really help. Uh, and it develops not just by USEA going in country and teaching, but these countries bring their people over here to learn too and to absorb and to um, have an opportunity to see other agencies. We try to help in the uh, construction of regulatory systems that are fair and open and allow the development of the people, but have a, a structure uh, of uh, regulatory and uh, energy oversight, which is useful to them too. So we, we do a variety of things. Um, each country is different. The political divisions that may have existed between them, uh, there are ways to uh, bring them together to help them work and, and uh, continue to provide uh, uh, energy supply to their people uh, and to overcome those uh, historical divisions or political divisions just to make the system work. So it's extremely interesting. Uh, and uh, and energy is a business that brings people together. It can drive them apart, but a lot of times it brings them together to make things work. And there's a certain practicality to it. Uh, engineering doesn't lie. I mean, the facts are the facts. Science is science and the facts are the facts. So it's 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 great in that way to see people working together. We're not there to uh, lay it on them. This is the way it's going to be. We work hand in hand and it's a, it's a wonderful relationship that goes on in many cases, goes on for decades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I guess I did want to ask, um, so Sheila, can you give us just a few more examples of what that technical assistance, whether it's to utilities or other energy partners in developing countries, you know, you mentioned developing regulatory frameworks, for example, but also focusing on safety and reliability. So can you tell us, just give us an example or, or two of how that looks in practice? Sure. Well, just a very recent one uh, is uh, an incident uh uh, that originated, we believe, in southeastern Europe uh, could have caused major, major cascading blackouts throughout the European power network. We never really tracked the exact cause. Uh, it's still being investigated, but uh, the frequency of northwest European grid dipped dramatically in 15 seconds. Uh, the regulating authority called ENTSO-E temporarily separated the two grids and in coordination with the, that was all in coordination with the system uh, transmission system operators in both regions, and it mitigated the potential for huge uh, and uh, devastating because of the weather uh, blackouts that would have damaged uh, all the countries involved. And so that is just one of the things that we had put in place to be able to work on this grid to get on, even though that political difference, cultural difference, all that energy can be a force for working together. And that's what we're trying to instill and to work with the country and work with groups of countries so that even though they have differing political, religious, cultural goals and views, to, to when it comes to energy, they can work together and to help each other, at least with respect to that. And uh, so that that's one, of, one example. And then uh, we also did a... Uh, tremendous amount of work uh, in uh, providing software um, and sophisticated modeling, planning capabilities, and so on. And uh, so that that's kind of what we, we try to do. And then we had another uh, very good example of how our work uh, in the field involves setting up a system to get, for example, to get a renewable energy auction set up. It, we did this in Colombia. Uh, and this is uh, in February of 2019. They had begun in Colombia uh, to have a renewable energy auction, but because there were uh, antitrust requirements in Colombia uh, that they wanted to use to ensure uh, sufficient competition, uh, anyway, they didn't. The result was they didn't get the the renewable energy that we wanted. So we worked uh, US with USAID. Um, in an energy utility partnership program uh, that recommended that they revise the auction rules. So this is not a physical thing. It's just a revising of the rules of the game. And as a result, uh, over 2,000 megawatts of renewable energy was awarded. And uh, AES, as a member of USEA, was actually awarded a, a tenth of that, 200, about 250 megawatts of wind capacity, and it uh, mobilized an uh, investment of about $230 million. So that's uh, those are two uh, examples from very recent history. So those are, you know, it could either be working through a regulatory system to make it work better, to achieve the objective that they, that they sought, uh, or it can be actually preventing uh, catastrophe from occurring, such as the blackout on a huge grid, which would have been extremely damaging uh, in the uh, winter uh, to these countries. So that's, that's, I mean, we do small things and we do big things, and the big things have big impact 
uh, for the good uh, of these countries and for the world. And and it works uh, so closely with with the U.S. government to accomplish this. And it and it and it makes the world aware that we. The United States is a good country, and we want to do the right thing. We want to help, and this is one way to express that element in the United States is that we want to do good for the world, and this is one way to do it. Well, and it it strikes me that, you know, some of your key government partners are, of course, the U.S. Department of Energy, which makes perfect sense, but also you've referenced several cases where you've partnered with the U.S. Agency for International Development. And so uh, I I guess I wanted to reflect on international development for just a second. And my understanding is that there's been an increased emphasis in the world of international development practice around sort of not simply parachuting in and telling uh, aid recipients what to do, and you and you referenced this a little bit before, but really engaging with them in a kind of a two-way dialogue. And so taking advantage of their in-country expertise, they are the best position to understand local circumstances and local challenges. But then, uh, you know, pairing that with the expertise that comes from U.S.-based companies and things like that. So does that match your experience? And, and I guess, what have you found to be the most effective ways that those U.S. companies can both educate but also learn. Well, you don't go into a country to dictate. You go into a country to help. And so that's the the underlying philosophy here is that you go in with your mind open and your heart open and not in any way a dictatorial, pushy kind of way. We want to help the country. We don't want to annoy them <laughs> by <laughs> <laughs> the the plan here is that we would demonstrate that the United States is a good and decent country that wants to help them. And the worst way to do that is to go in uh, issuing orders like you've suddenly taken over the place, which is that's that is not what we do at all. And we have developed relationships with many of these countries over many years. The people come over, they come to the United States, they they visit the United States, they visit uh, utilities over here of a particular interest they may have. And our volunteers, we send, we have had the blessing of having wonderful volunteers from our members who have gone over and uh, either supported by the their, their companies or on their own and worked with the people to address these issues. And friendships are formed over many, many years. It's, a, it's, it's not at all dictatorial or pushy. Uh, it, uh, an issue has been identified, usually by the country. It said, you know, we have a problem with X. Would it be possible to get some help to do this? We don't invent it out of thin air. There's an issue. And so so it, it has a tremendous history, and it's had a profound impact. And it's something we've worked in 104 countries. Our, our staff speaks 14 languages. Uh there's, it's just a, a, a wonderful outreach, and uh, the three directors uh, who have traveled to every corner of planet Earth, some of them have been with uh, USEA for 20 years, many of our employees are, uh, 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 they cover a wide range of expertise. There's engineers, there's uh, IT, there's uh geologists, there's a broad range of capabilities which we bring to bear. And also they're in-country specialists. They understand the country, the culture, and the surrounding environs. But the focus, their primary focus is getting the energy systems to work better for the people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I guess I say this as the 
child of two teachers, but if there's anything that I have experienced too, it's that people genuinely love sharing their expertise and people genuinely appreciate when that expertise is offered in admittedly, you know, and importantly as sort of a, um, a humble way, but nonetheless, everybody appreciates having someone who can give them good advice. And so it makes a lot of sense that there would be this this sort of mutually beneficial relationship where people who have that expertise would love to share it and people who can benefit from it would really uh, embrace it. So I certainly can see why it would be a, a long lasting and very, um, yeah, just mutually beneficial model. I, I've worked all over the world. I can tell you that some of my best friends are at least uh, 8,000 miles away. <laughs> so, yeah, and uh, we've stayed in touch over, over decades and it's not, necessarily related to energy it's photos from the families and all. it's just a wonderful wonderful thing and and it I, this is a way for the united states with using us as an implement to express how the american people how good they are and how they want to do the right thing yeah solving problems together is a very powerful uh um uh, connector i think so that that yeah that makes a lot of sense so maybe just one final question for you then, um, and it is about this partnership with the federal government. And, uh, you know, we are we are recording here in March 2021, and so the Biden administration is still relatively new. And I guess I wondered how you see your partnership changing maybe over the next four years under this relatively new administration. Uh, are there new initiatives that you're looking to uh, to embark on? What? How do you see this thinking around expanded energy access playing out um, with your current federal partners? Well, we've worked with many different administrations, and it's been an honor and a pleasure to work with each of them. These projects are not uh, 60-day or two-month projects. These projects go on for years. And we anticipate and expect that our relationship uh, with this administration will be as great as our relationships with other administrations too. We have gone through 30 plus years. Uh, we've seen a lot of different administrations and we we know that the people at USAID, uh, the State Department and the Energy Department want to do the right thing and we want to do the right thing with them and uh, we take a, a lead from them. Uh, we're going to be working throughout the world on behalf of uh, of. of the United States. And uh, obviously, we take direction from them. They know what they want to do, and we will help them implement it. I expect that uh, every administration has a different um, a different vision, but it's not, it doesn't work like the light switch. You can't turn it on and off the projects that are underway, but there may be growth in different areas. It's a very exciting time. We're really looking forward to it with all of the new technologies that are being explored. Uh, Clearly, cybersecurity is a huge issue, trying to en enhance cybersecurity in these countries. And these are the types of critical issues that transcend, they really transcend politics in many ways. Uh, and the new technologies are going to, to take off and take hold. The, the uh, consideration of environmental and CO2 issues are going to uh, be enhanced. We're going to be uh, working more in those areas for sure. Uh, and we reflect. Uh, we don't invent it. We reflect what the U.S. government wants to do. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, great. Yeah, it's certainly going to be something to watch. And I am I am sure that other countries will continue to value the, the content that you bring and, and the... Um, 
yeah, just the expertise you're willing to share. So it's great to learn a little bit more from you about how that all works in practice. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Yeah. So, Sheila, I think we've reached our time, and I will close with our our regular closing feature, Top of the Stack. So, Sheila, what's on the top of your stack? Feel free to recommend something to our listeners that you think might be relevant, either to this particular subject of conversation or just more generally of interest. Well, we have, uh, we actually uh, have on our board uh, Dan Jurgen, and he's just come out with a really wonderful new book called The New Map, uh, and uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize for the Quest, which really, uh, really presented a different picture of energy, the way energy worked, and the way it influenced the world, and so with all the things that have gone on since that wonderful book came out, the new map has just come out, and so that's something that's uh, on the top of my stack that I'm working on right now. Great. Great. Sounds good. Well, at least here in Washington, D.C., we have a beautiful day. So hopefully you can get outside and enjoy the sunshine someplace and get a little bit more of that book under your belt. Well, it's a delight to be with you. Thank you so much for including me. And thank you for your fine work at RFF. Oh, thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.